Welcome back to Weekend Superstars. My name is John McHugh. My co-host, George Moulton, is unfortunately not with us tonight. We uh, had some scheduling issues. He's got a gig, but I'm mad at him anyway because he didn't invite me for that gig. So uh, I'm going to take advantage, and uh, I am on location in Louisville, Kentucky tonight. We've got a, a first time. Uh, we have a guest we've never met before. Um, nice to meet a, you, This sir. is a first, and uh, first time having a Grammy winner on the show uh we're doing all kinds of cool stuff greg greg martin glad to be here but you've nice had, to meet you but you've had jp pennington and that just transcends anything he's <laughs> he's my hero i, I was going to start with the jp story <laughs> well actually, we can go we can go because um full disclosure you the headhunters were not on my radar growing up um, is that right like i familiar with it i even played your songs in many clubs <laughs> for many years but it just wasn't stuff that i listened to it, sure and i took it every time i heard hand hunters i heard southern rock and i just that wasn't my bag oh i got you sure. and so i was always a big fan of exile and jp and been lucky to know him for a long time now and yes. i was going down a rabbit hole on youtube looking at jp stuff yeah. and i came across a video of the two of you guys playing Mm. And then I went on a rabbit hole of looking at your videos. And then I came across your blues background. And then I found your low down, hoe down show. And then I was like, where have I been? I need to, I need (laughs) to know this. I've missed something because look at all the the blues background. Then you're inspired by the Beatles, just like everybody else was. I need to dig into this. And then I did. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it was probably maybe 10 years ago when I really was like, got familiar no, with the headhunters. That, that's okay, man. I mean, yeah. Uh, when I really wanted to like, I need to dig back and figure out what these guys are about because I missed something, you know, in the early days. Well, the headhunters is a strange uh, burgoo of different influences. And um, if you go back to the 70s, we were called Itchy Brothers. Yeah. You know, and that's how we got to know JP. Well, actually, we all knew who JP was, and that, that I can tell you more about that in a minute. But, uh, but the headhunters really, Richard, Fred, and our cousin Anthony, and myself, we all started playing together in 1968. Right. You know, when I was in high school at Midcalf County High School. And, you know, we played off and on, and, you know, I, I moved to Louisville after I graduated in 1972, <laughs> back when Moses was just a little kid. <laughs> and, um, and you know, then it came apparent when I moved up here, I thought that we could continue to play together. I could go back and forth, but it, it became apparent that I, I couldn't. So we all went in our different directions for a few years, and they kept pushing forward and they slowly morphed i mean when i was living in louisville um i played a little bit up here with different people a band called rain tree i played with karen craft i played uh with some other bands a group called the wacker brothers which if anybody's ever heard of the wacker brothers i'd be surprised but if you know i didn't music at that point in 72 as much as i loved it it wasn't i wasn't sure if i that's what I was going to do. I, I was just kind of floating around. And uh, I ended up taking a gig. When I first moved up, I worked at Fawcett Printing Company in the bindery. And it was an okay job, you know. Uh, and, and then I ended up taking a job at P.I. Burks, which was electronic wholesale. 
And I ended up managing their store in Iroquois Manor for like two and a half years, which I loved that job because we sold stereos, records, CB radios <laughs> during the craze. And about that time, uh, this is this is kind of how, how fate works itself out. So we're talking about from 74 to early 77, how I'm managing the store and being just a, you know, floating around. And, you know, of course, Itchy Brother down in South Central Kentucky and Edmonton, they're, they're going on and they're, they're finding their style, which was a more of a Southern rock type thing. Yeah. You know, Richard, I think, and they end up going to Atlanta and uh, with a different bass player and, and uh, that's a whole different study but uh, they went to Atlanta and they, they were came close to getting a deal with Capricorn they had management and of course I was in Louisville just floating and then uh, what's, let me think I saw Led Zeppelin in um, April 1977 saw the movie The Song Remains the Same and and I went oh my this is great. But now, right before that, I had joined a band out of Louisville called Rain Tree. And we were a cover band. I think we did one original. So our first gig when I joined Rain Tree is we are opening up for Exile at yeah. Club 68. And I had never seen Exile live. I've heard Exile's records. I had their album on Wood Nickel Records from 73. I loved that. I loved... Church Street Soul Revival. Oh yeah, I loved their. I just loved the band. I knew what they were about. But when I saw them, we played our little meager set at Club Sixty Eight, and I, we did okay. We did fine. I mean, I think them guys did fine. I was I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But uh, here comes Exile, and I went, oh my god. So I said, if I'm going to do this for a living, I'm going to have to work at it. I saw that. I heard JP. That's the first time I really heard JP play guitar. Yeah. He's playing his melody maker into a Marshall head and a trainer bottom. And I thought, that sound. And he was just so natural, so good. Yeah. You know? And their vocals and their groove and everything. So that that, that planted a seed right there. There's several, as I call them, life marker moments or seed planting moments. Sure. You know, where you go. You know, it's just something that takes root in your soul, so to speak. That's so funny because so when we started this podcast, the, origi sure. the original plan was, you know, we meet so many musicians yeah. at gigs, but we all work. No, sure. None of us get to hang out. Sure. And there's so many guys that came before that are still around that were inspiration that may not have been exile or headhunters, but were still local inspirations to us. And we wanted to get those people on. Yeah. Everyone we've had on had a similar story about exile. Almost I, I everyone. I believe. It all yeah. was like that was how it was. That was almost the marker of this is how you do it. Well, they, they were. They, the they ones, were the bar it, to go up to. They, they were. They yeah. were. Um, now, there was some bands out of Louisville, and JP would even, he would even say this as well, because me and JP love these two bands I'm getting ready to admit. There's, there's several out of Louisville. In the 60s, there was uh, Elysian Field with Frank Bugby on guitar, who I saw in 68. That planted a giant seed to play guitar, to, to really even get in a band. Yeah. There was another band called Soul Incorporated. Uh, there was the Rugby's, there was the Oxford's, there was uh, Us Four, uh, the Mercy Beach USA. But then there was the, the Exiles. Exiles, that's right. And then, 
like I say, fast forwarding uh, to uh, it been. Uh, I'm going to guess when we played with Exile, it was. I, I'm thinking. I just remember it being very cold. I drove from Louisville down to Club 68, and I had a girlfriend in Summershade, Kentucky. And I remember after the gig, making my way down to Summershade, you know, and but it was just cold. It, it could have been like the first part of 1977. Uh, Try It On was their 45 at the time, which was a great song. It should have made it in there, you know. But I saw them guys. I don't remember even meeting JP that night. I I was so not in, well intimidated maybe, but but more in awe that I didn't know what to say. You know, I was just like I just took in a big life lesson. Sure, as you say, the bar had been yeah. You know, here I growing up here in the south end of Louisville, where I grew up. You know, there really was nothing to. You know, there was a lot of good bands out of Louisville, but that, but Exile took the local thing and took it regional and national. Yeah. And they were heading national. You know, at that point they were going. You know, and it wasn't very much longer where they. You know, they they went totally international, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't. I just remember hearing that, and then. Saw uh, saw Zeppelin, and right after that, I, Raintree had a chance to go to Florida to play Spring Break, and this would have been in, the, I'm thinking March of '77, and uh, I was working at Burks. I just remember calling my boss at PI Burks and saying, "I'm quitting," and he was very cool about it because yeah. I didn't give a notice or nothing. But the cool thing is. I was managing a store out here, and they had moved it downtown. They moved me back downtown. I was just a regular employee down there, and so he he was fine with it. And so when we were playing Florida with Rain Tree, on one side there was a band called Bobo, which is a Kentucky band. Then on the right side of us was Exile, the Big Daddies. And <laughs> one day we were playing, like during the day. I don't know if JP remembers this. He. I look over at the fence, and he's peering over the fence watching us play. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've I'm made like, that oh, face God. before. <laughs> yeah, I said, oh, God. And I was nervous, you know. But I went over and met him that day. I went over and met him, shook his hand. And then in the 80s, you know, I got to know him when I was playing with Ronnie McDowell, uh, Exile, when they went country. We shared a lot of shows with those guys, and we would hang. And I got to know JP, of course, JP remembered, you know, the, the, the connection. Also, Itchy Brother, Richard Fred, and Anthony, they would open up for Exile at different clubs and uh, Club 68 in different places. But I got to know JP and just just really looked up to JP uh, in a lot of ways. And um, so when the Headhunters hit it, uh, then we, you know, we already knew each other but then. And, of course, our styles are nothing alike because those guys uh, – they, if you go back to their, and I know this is not all about exit. Well, it is really, folks, because uh, you know, as John just said, man, these these are the guys that set the bar, and they showed us the light that any you know that calls you from Kentucky. And believe me, being from Kentucky in the seventies, unless you went to Nashville and went the country route, mm-hmm. it was hard in rock and roll, right, to make it. But yeah. these guys did it. Yeah, you know, and they gave us a glimmer of hope, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, 
God bless you, JP. I'm going to fast forward real quick. Sure, and, man. And we'll come back. But since we're on the exile thing, um, mm-hmm. eventually you got inducted into the Kentucky Music Hall of Fame. We with were abducted. Exile, right? Abducted, yeah. <laughs> How did that feel doing it with them? It was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, yeah, that was a surreal moment when uh, Richard called me one day and said, Hey, man, you ain't going to believe this. We were, we're being inducted into the. Uh, Kentucky Music Hall of Fame in exile was going to be in the group the Hilltoppers mm-hmm. which is Billy Vaughn's group uh, who else uh, oh gosh there was, there was a few others that day it was amazing it was just uh, Skeeter Davis but yeah it was amazing because at the uh, ceremony at the end we had a big jam session with exile and Steve Warner got it played yeah that's too. right Yeah, were you there I Are wasn't you? there okay. but I've seen some videos and some pictures yeah yeah, it was amazing. It was like a, you know, it's funny how things work out when you're a kid. You know, you're hearing these, hearing a band like Exile on radio. I remember coming to Louisville around 1970, 71, and hearing them on the radio. And this is after Church Street Soul Revival. They had a had another song or two on the radio, and they were a little heavier. I, was, I know they cut the songs uh, at uh, in Doraville through Atlanta Rhythm Section's producer. And I just remember hearing them guys. I'm going, God, they're so good, you know. And, and what does it take to do that when you hear these bands like that? And I don't know. It's like the the good Lord just uh, gives you a closes one door, opens another, right, you know, yeah. so to speak, you know. But uh, great band, yeah, a great, great band. Go, I love every one of the guys. Go back to uh, how'd you get the gig with Ronnie? That's how'd a, that come about. Strange. It was okay. Well, there again, Itchy Brother was a really, I mean, honestly, it was a really, really good rock band. When I went back and rejoined them in 77, those guys were really close to getting a deal in 77 and in Atlanta. And when they came home one day, the bass player at the time uh, just decided he had enough. He wasn't going back. And I was floating around. This was October uh, yeah, October of 77. So I get a call, and I, of course I'd quit Power Burks, and I'd been to Florida with Raintree, and I saw Led Zeppelin, you know, and this and that. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do with my life, you know? <laughs> I was having to borrow money out of the, the cookie jar. Was some, the change, man, sometimes at my, at, at, I was living with my parents, you know. And I can't remember if Richard or Fred called one day and said, look, uh, Tim has quit the band. And Anthony Kenny has agreed to go back to bass if you will come and rejoin and play guitar. And I was it was wide open for me to do that. If it had been a year before, I would have probably said, oh, man, thanks. Right. But, you know, it's just the timing was right, the window was right. So we played for about, uh, we tried real hard to get a record deal. We wrote some de- really good songs, some that have, the headhunters have recorded later, you know, but it just came apparent with disco coming out. Sure, yeah. Rearing its head, which I'm not. Disco did teach me how to play rhythm guitar. <laughs> That's one good thing. Yeah. Thank you, Niles Rogers <laughs> and JP, because <laughs> JP could play. They, oh, played, yeah. they weren't disco. They, oh yeah. They, they were funk, you know. Um, but that rhythm guitar. Oh, that rhythm guitar is amazing. I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. I have coffee. Okay. Good old Christian 
fog lifter here. That's a real quick shout out to Steve for letting us yeah. do this in his yeah. studio here. Raise the Roof Studio. That's right. Thank you, Steve Wilson. Steve Steve goes he knows JP real well too. Who? JP Pennington. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we're talking we're we're just uh we're giving JP some love. Gushing over him, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know how good that band is. I've never heard a bad version of Exile, man. They always had it together. The heart and soul has always been there. But when you put JP you know, JP is the the daddy, man. Yeah. So anyway, getting back to Itchy Brothers. So uh, them boys, they came back from Atlanta. The, the, so I leave Louisville. I moved back. God bless Richard and Fred. They let me move in with them, put a pallet in the floor, and I slept on the floor. Ate really good because their mother was the best, Mama Gwen. And um, we were going back to Atlanta. And I don't know why we never went back. Something went down. Uh, we either with management so anyway, we ended up, you know, just playing Louisville, Illinois, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, different things, and and um, we ended up making a connection with Mitchell Fox, who worked for Swan Song Records out of New York. He worked for Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and he came down to see us in the spring of 1978, and uh, he loved the band and. And he was going to try to help us get a, a deal. And actually, Swan Song were on the radar at the time. But it just didn't, because of the disco thing, it just never happened. And it, I needed a job, and I, I just ended up abruptly, which I shouldn't have done it. But there again, there's a reason for everything happening. Right. If I hadn't done it, maybe things wouldn't have worked out the way they should. Or, or I think things always work out better uh not always, but 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 most most generally things. If you if you, as long as you keep clean and take care of yourself, things work out. And I I, I did something really stupid though. I quit and went back to work at a printing company, and I hated that job. I'm sorry, I hated it. And I had a friend call me and say, "You want to take this gig in Bowling Green?" And I, and I took the gig, and I was working at the printing company. And finally, I quit the printing company. And slowly and slowly, I, I ended up with this funk horn band, which was a really good band. We were touring all over the South. We were played at played in Cuba. Uh, wow. Itchy Brother went on with a, a, a different member. And um, so, so I get a call from Richard again one day while I'm out with the, the Park Street band, the funk band. He said, hey, man, Mitchell Fox says he can get us uh, some funding to go in the studio and this and that. And so I had to quit. I quit the Park Street Man. And we got back together. And there again, we gave it another novel shot. Uh, we went to New York and showcased at Tracks, at the Lone Star, uh, at the Mad Hatter. And we recorded some good demos. Uh, actually, Eddie Kramer mixed uh, one of the demos. He, look up Eddie Kramer. He worked with yeah. Zeppelin and everybody, yeah. you know. And uh, we played a lot of gigs, and then uh, it, there again it came apparent that things just didn't wasn't in the cards for us. Actually, Peter Brandt, our manager, had a he flew to England and to have a meeting with Peter Grant. But he this is back when Peter wasn't in good shape. Yeah, he he had some substance abuse problems and the whole time Mitchell was there he said uh, Peter Grant was upstairs would never come down oh, to man. see him he said he could hear him walking back and forth yeah 
So he, he was doing some kind of substance. We won't get into that. But anyway, there's a Led Zeppelin book, I think written by Peter Cole, and it actually mentions us in that book, you know, oh, wow. about the deal. I think, yeah, we were going to be signed. So it came apparent then uh, it wouldn't happen. And I'd, I'd gotten married in February of 79. And um, to a, my wife, Ruth, who has two kids, Sherry and John, as you we, mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, they're musicians in Lexington. I didn't know they were going to be musicians then when I married them, but, yeah. but it worked out that way. And uh, so I left Itchy Brother a second time, and I went. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest with you, because I had a family to support. And I came to Louisville kind of looking at opportunities, talked to Dave Snowden at Triangle Talent, uh, and all of a sudden I got a call from one of the guys in Park Street who had left the band, and he was playing with Ronnie McDowell, and he was leaving to play on a cruise ship. He says, Ronnie wants to get another guitar player. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Work. So I went down, audition one day, uh, played a couple of songs with him, and Ronnie said, well, can you do Hee Haw tomorrow? And then we played uh, Hee Haw the next day. We did a, matter of fact, I've seen the video. I looked scared to death, <laughs> scared to death. And then that night we played with Burl Haggard, and a bunch of different people at the the old opera house, actually the new opera house for a CBS record store. And from uh, October of 81 to June of 89, I was with Ronnie McDowell. And it was the greatest learning experience ever. Wow. He was a good boss. It was just something I needed to do. Sure, He taught me about touring, riding the bus, doing TV, radio, Recording, we got recording songs with Ronnie and and helping him produce albums. And uh, as hard as it was to leave Richard and Fred, it was just what was supposed to happen. The first day I started with Ronnie, Doug Phelps auditioned. He joined Ronnie too. Really, I didn't know that. I would we have never known Doug if I hadn't done that. And they wouldn't because of me. I give all this to the good Lord above. He just he's he, he. kind of guide you he will, well he will guide you I ain't gonna say kinda if you let him and cause I couldn't make this up man I yeah. mean, the first day I auditioned Doug auditions Doug couldn't do it because he was just a kid he was 18 or 19 in college and so he had to wait back a couple of weeks and tie things up then he ended up joining Ronnie like two weeks later wow so that's how I got Ronnie the, it was through our sax player Joe Getze with the Park Street Band who went to Cuba and did things like that. Yeah. So I'd say by the time the headhunters got back to, well, I guess the guys got back together and became the headhunters, right? Because you weren't well, headhunters yet, right? Yeah, here's what happened on that. Itchy Brother went on, uh, and and they always had a good band. It was always Richard and Fred. And then sometimes they would, like Anthony would play guitar. Sometimes Doug Cook was in the band. Uh, Kim Ritchie was actually in the uh, line up for a minute and different people Mark Orr great singer who ended up with the Headhunters for a little bit uh, in 86 I just kind of got this inkling that b- there was a Roots revival happening blues rockabilly and it just seemed like a good time and my intentions was let's just put our band back together for fun sure we can play Bowling Green every now and then we could play, you know, maybe Louisville. 
So we got together um, when I started talking to Richard and Fred. Of course, they wanted Anthony, our cousin, back in on bass. He didn't want to do it. He'd done been through the going to New York, and uh, his heart had been broken enough, you know, from record deals they were happening. And so I mentioned Doug on bass. And honestly, uh, at first they weren't really sold on it till they came down to Scottsville, Kentucky. I think the first time Richard saw Doug was maybe when Ronnie, we played a gig in March of 1986 at Glasgow. Then I think maybe Richard and Fred came down to um, Scottsville. And they, they, they were like, well, we should get together and jam with him. So we got together in my basement in March, like late March of 86, and uh, we played a couple of tunes and thought, yeah, this is cool. It's different, you know. Right. And so that's it. So when it came to the name, we didn't feel good calling it Itchy Brother because Anthony wasn't there. So we, I, I had suggested the Headhunters. And that was because... Uh, blues we, thing, right? It was the blues thing. It was a book <laughs> by Robert Palmer, uh, Deep Blues, and there was a section about Muddy Waters moving to Chicago and had a band that become known as the Headhunters. Right. And we just liked that name. So, And that's so, another connection that once I got started digging into you guys and I figured that out, I was like, it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it's weird. It, it, I was it, like, it, I should have picked up on this a long time ago. Crazy little journey, man. And then Ricky wasn't in the initial, well, actually, the lineup that's out there now, Doug, Richard, Fred, and I, that's the lineup that started the band. Right. We brought Ricky in, which was was really, really good, you know, because uh, we, you know, picking on Nashville, you know. And, yeah. Uh, happened, and Ricky brought some great songs, and uh, we had a great chemistry. And Ricky came in a few months later. I'm trying to think how he, that even happened. I think he came to rehearsal one night. And he saw Doug driving up to the old practice house outside of Edmonton. And he was curious what Doug was up to, you know. Because Ricky had moved to Nashville. And Ricky was down in Nashville doing music a little bit, doing different things. And, um, and I... I one night at rehearsal, I think them two sang together, and I think everybody's whether well, you know the light just went off. Right. And yeah. There was a brother harmony, and then eventually he worked his way into the band, and I, I don't know that I'm gonna I'm gonna just say eighty late eighty six early eighty seven when he joined, and he was with us up till June ninety two, you know. So we did two albums with Ricky, you know. So wow. It was. Quite a ride there, as you know, with picking on Nashville. Yeah. When when that album hit, uh, I get. I mean, technically, you could pretty much say you were a twenty years overnight sensation. Oh, you God, know, yeah. Um, yeah. Really but, starting in '68, right? You want to get exactly. Yeah. About it, yeah. But with your experience with Ronnie, was that success easier to handle, or was it still a roller coaster of a it here still, it comes it, and fast? It was still a roller coaster. When I started with Ronnie, I. He was having his top ten number ones with CBS, you know, Older Women, Wandering Eyes, uh, mm-hmm. New York Bennett. He was having a lot of hits. And matter of fact, some of the last stuff I did with Ronnie was uh, we did a really cool version of It's Only Make Believe with Conway Twitty right. that went top ten. And we, we co-produced that and played on it. So, no, uh, it, it, it made things easier in the respect that I think we learned 
some things maybe we shouldn't do or should, you know, things how to act, how to treat people, which your audience is, is supreme, you know, because they support you, you know. Right. And uh, it, our band was so different. We didn't ride on the coattails of Ronnie whatsoever, but we, you know, because our band was so different than what he was doing. But you had learned enough. We learned enough from Ronnie. Because yeah. I always say, uh, me and Doug always say we, we went to Ronnie McDowell University. Sure, yeah, you know? exactly. So I really appreciate it. And he employed us for, I was there eight and a half years, and um, supported my family, you know. I'm very right. appreciative of Ronnie. He's a, a dear friend to this day. Uh, he was very proud when it. He didn't understand when we signed our deal. He was worried about us, and but I think once it hit, I think he went, "Oh yeah, man." So that's what was supposed to happen. Yeah, you know. I think once you guys finally got together and got that album out and the success that you had, doing it with those guys. Yeah. Did it just feel like you were at home? Like yeah. this, this wasn't another gig. These, these are yeah family. You know. It felt right. It felt right. It felt right. Um, and there again, how the album, it's another crazy story. We were playing Dukes outside of, well, it was in Richmond, Virginia, Mythologian Road. That place was crazy. <laughs> it's a nutty place. But what we, uh, what would happen, because uh, I was really smitten by the blues thing, and uh, one night at the end of Ronnie's set, as Ronnie walked off, we played Hideaway by Freddie King. Kind of mm-hmm. like, everybody knows that little instrumental. Clapton's done it with uh, yeah. John Mayall, different people. And, and up walks this little fellow with glasses, kind of look like Dennis the Menace's dad. His name was Jonathan D.W. Lyle. And he comes up to me and says, you like blues? I said, oh, yeah, man. And I was really into it at that time, man. You know, I was going back and learning about the uh, – and a lot of it was that uh, Robert Palmer book, you know. Uh, it was teaching me, you know, to, you know, Stevie Ray was big at the time, but I wanted to go below the surface and see who influenced who and, exactly. you know, check out the old B.B. King, not just The Thrill Is Gone, but go back and listen to the RPM and Crown Record sides, uh, listen to old Albert King, not just the stacks, but go back and hear the the recordings he did for Bobbin Records, uh, Freddie King's material from King Records, Nathan uh Oh, I can't think of the guy's name. It was King Records out of Cincinnati, mm-hmm. but but it was just a lear- a learning season. And anyway, he got the gist, and so me and Doug took him on the bus. Said, "Yeah, we got a little blues band back home called the Headhunters, and we played him a tape." And he saw that we were excited, and he got excited, and he ended up giving us the money to record "Picking on Nashville." Really? Initially, we went to Sound Shop and recorded eight songs that ended up on that album. And because we were working at the sound shop with Mike Bradley a lot at the time. Gotcha. And he, he I can't remember how much it was. I'm going to just throw $6,700 out there right now, which was a lot of money back in, you know, mid-80s. And uh, so we recorded these eight songs. We released a little cassette. Uh, they call it the pink tape because the cover is pink. Mm-hmm. It's got a picture of Merle Travis's guitar on it. I, I have no clue this day whose idea that was. And, and uh, I got I got friends that argue, hey, that tape ain't pink. I said, no, it's not pink, but the white album wasn't white either. Come on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's because the cover was, was pink. And um, so um, 
we recorded that. We were, you know, we, we sold a few of those little tapes at the, uh, you know, Jonathan gave us the money. He never said a thing. You know, wasn't worried about it. God bless him. We released the little, well, we didn't release it. We just sold it out of the trunk. Well, I was going to ask, so you had it recorded before the record deal? Eight of the songs. Eight wow. of the songs. And they didn't that, make you re-record? No, we went back and remixed a little bit, added uh, keyboards on one song or something. And then we recorded new, two new songs, and that was okay. it. Okay, wow. And that's why we, how we became producers. <laughs> <laughs> we, learned, we, we learned the secret of being a producer. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so I don't remember. It was 88, 1988. Uh, we had a showcase. We started getting interest from uh, CBS Records. Larry Hamby at CBS heard the tape, and he loved it. And then um, people were starting to pass that tape around. So there was a buzz going about the band. So we decided we needed to do a showcase in Nashville. And we had played Nashville a little bit here and there, I guess, maybe a couple times. I don't, I mean, really in heart of hearts, I don't think anybody was really aiming for a country record deal I, I, it just kind of happened you know and we were playing uh, we played a showcase one night matter of fact me and Doug barely made it in from Richmond Virginia but we changed in, the, in, in our cars and we went in and played uh, Leroy Parnell was doing a showcase that night too yeah and uh, Larry Hamby was there but when he heard us live he said well you guys are a rock man I don't know what to do with you guys you know sure. so that deal went south uh, there were some other labels, but uh, Harold Shedd was there to check out. I think he was there to check out. Uh, I'm not sure if he was there to hear us. Problem. I think. I think there was. Uh, he had heard the tape, and uh, maybe he was a little curious about us. And I think everybody was also checking out Leroy Parnell. And Leroy was there at night. He said he heard us. He said, "Huh." Heavy metal bluegrass. That's what he says. I love him. I love Leroy. So anyway, uh, we play, and Harold loved it. He he goes to talk. Ricky, God bless him, he was the the singer. He was all frustrated because, you know, here me and Doug were out working. Fred had been out playing with Sylvia. Everybody's doing different things, and we couldn't really be a band. And I guess Harold walked up to him and said, how often do you guys play? Oh, we never get to play. You know, he was right. frustrated. Yeah. Was, you know, and uh, I think Mitchell or somebody gave Harold a, a, one of the pink tapes. And, and he told somebody that night. I can't remember who he told. Maybe it was Harold. I heard Harold say this. He said, I told somebody that night. I saw them. I said, I'm going to sign that band. And he did. Wow. Paperwork got started pretty quick at the end of 88. And by spring of 89, it was pretty apparent what was going to happen. Yeah. And, um, I can't remember. I think we signed our deal like May or June of. It could have been sooner. It was '89 when the deal was finally finalized and signed, and and we had to tell Ronnie McDowell what was going on, and we had to leave the band, had to leave the nest, and you know I, yeah. I ended up uh, my cousin Anthony, who played with Itchy Brother, ended up taking my place on guitar with Ronnie, and I took a job at a record store in Glasgow, and it was like well. We're going to release our first album, and it's going to go south, and then that's it. Yeah. Then I lost my good gig. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how much faith I had. You know, I should have had more faith. But I learned a lot of good faith lessons from a lot of this stuff over the years. 
Yeah, like I say, one closed door is an open door somewhere else. And uh, when the album was released, it, uh, there was a buzz going on about it. And then Walk Softly, uh, the video took off pretty quick on CMT. And Dumas Walker just kicked it into high gear. Yeah. And, buddy, we were off and running. You know. <clears throat> That's one of the things I wish George was able to be here for because mm -hmm. he's older than I am. Yeah. He started playing in bands around that time that you all were taking off. So I know, and he's from that same school, yes. country and Southern rock and yep. blues and all yep. that. So he would have more to say about what that meant to him at that age because that's the type of stuff that they were playing. It was it was like um, yeah. you guys and Travis Tritt and some others that were putting some of that rock stuff in. And everybody was probably listening to the Georgia uh, the Georgia Satellites because exactly. they yeah. were a big, they were groundbreaking. Uh, we really. We weren't trying to be them by no means, but but we when they kicked the doors down with, um, I mean there's some other folks that kicked the doors down, uh, Steve Earle, right, kind of the whole the whole country rock thing it was started to happen. Foster you know. and Lloyd, sure. Uh, we listened to a lot of NRBQ as well. Terry Adams was a keyboard player from Louisville, and that's that's another story. They they were kind of like exiled to us on a different, but a whole different kind of music altogether. But hopefully, when we signed our deal and it did well, maybe we did the same thing that Exile did for us. Maybe it gave everybody a glimmer of hope exactly. that, hey, we can do this. Exactly, yeah. I'm hoping, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. I know it did. Speak, um, you were talking about Walk Softly and, and Dumas. Uh, we've had the conversation on the show before about uh, cover bands and playing standards and yeah. Those have become standards. It's and amazing. Isn't it's it? wild, like enough, like so. Take George for instance. George does a lot of original music, and yeah, sure, he's been very fortunate to have people sing these songs back to him. And it's but good. you guys get to walk into any bar in town, and somebody's probably going to play "Walk Softly." <laughs> well, you know, it's crazy. What's that feeling. It's, like? it's amazing. It's amazing, and uh, I'll tell you. This far into the game, you know, we're older guys now. We've been around for a minute. Uh, on The Voice, a few a few weeks ago, I saw that. Did you yeah. see the uh -huh. contestant that brought the tape on of yeah. Blake Shelton singing Dumas Walker in right. the studio? And I went, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And then we were kind of mentioned again this past week, but it's it's amazing when you have a a song that gives your career. Uh, legs so to speak yeah you know walk softly i'll tell you another song that we didn't write but norman uh, green mom did spirit in the sky mm -hmm. uh that song has been good to us as well yeah but dumas walker has been a very good kid to us he's taking care of his parents right right <laughs> you know? it's like well we had mentioned that you know if uh if you're playing in a bar yes and you might you're always going to have your bands that play the top 40 at the time. Sure. But there's always that set of standards, and they don't seem to change over the years. Those songs, you have to know family tradition. You have to know, you know, yeah. don't even know your name, and all those songs. Dixieland Delight. And those so those two songs are in there, and I feel like they're going to stay there for a while because uh, that's, that's really it's like cool. those are the songs you have to know to get the gig. 
It's cool. It, it, it's very cool. I, I never. I had to learn them to get the gig. Uh, hey man, that's, that's great. It, it makes it makes us feel really. Good. But I think it's I think it's really cool to know that I, I mean, as far as at least regionally in tri state, those are standards. You know for sure. It's amazing. I when we wrote Dumas Walker, you know, me and Fred had a. This is when I was working at Pi Burks in Louisville, and I remember this conversation. Fred calls me one day. This would have been 1976. Summer of 76, he calls me. Of course, they're, they're doing itchy, brother. I don't know. He just called me out of the blue. I don't even know why. But we got talking about writing songs, and we got talking about we need to write a song about us growing up in our area and going to Dumas Walkers and going to get Slaw Burgers. And we, we started talking. We just, it was just planet. Sure. And, not that we're brilliant by any means. I, it it came, it, it came from above. I, I I believe this. This song was planted from above many years ago, and when we got together, this is before Ricky had even joined the band. We we we'd already started writing it, and pretty much had it finished, and uh, and it just it just gelled, you know. Once once you put those vocals on. And but it took a long time to write it, but it was the, I think the seed was planted. You know, it had to be planted because really, if you don't write about what you know, then you're not. I mean, then you're just getting to you're going to Nashville and right. writing songs. That, you know, I can't write surfing songs. I love, I love to hear the safaris. And I love to hear exactly. the Beach Boys. But what do I know about surfing? Right. I don't even know anything about hot rods, man. I, you know, I don't. But we were very blessed with that song right there, Walk Softly, that Ricky brought that to the band. We Even when we did cover songs, John, back in the day, we would never do them just like... Obviously, I think everybody would play Creedence like that. But we would always take take songs like the Beatles, Drive My Car, or Satisfaction, and we'd do them our own way. I was just getting ready to mention on the way up here, uh, my buddy Doug that's with me, uh, shout out to Doug, he had never heard you all do Hide Your Love Away. Yeah. And uh, that is, I don't sing very often, but when I do, that's one it's of the songs song. that I do. It's one of my favorite Beatles songs. Me and too. it's completely different, but it's traditional. But adding the slide guitar on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The slides. harmonies are a little different, you know, and you've got an actual kit of drums playing on there, different than the Beatles. But, like, um, yeah, you, you just put your stamp on it, you know. On all those cover songs, you've got the Headhunter stamp. Yeah, absolutely, and the, there's some power chords on the chorus. Which there's no point in doing them the way they were. No, no, done and, we, and we learned. They that. already have those, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we <laughs> learned that. I mean, listen, you know, there's guys that can mimic and they can do, uh, they can do spot on impressions, and and you know, and, and that's really what when you're doing in cover bands, and I've I've been in cover bands. You know, Park Street Band was a cover band, a really good cover band. Yeah, I mean, Funky is all get out. They were really good. Uh, but you know, if you really want to take it somewhere, if you can't write your own songs or reinterpret songs with your own heart and soul, then I, you know, right? Yeah, I, that that's the longevity aspect of it. Yeah. Um, on going back to you've got to hide your love away. There's some power chords on the choruses. His name Mark Caps is the gentleman that done those. As a matter of fact, he just got. He just died back uh, a few months ago. He got shot by some police. It, sad story. He was one of the engineers that used to work with us at Sound mm-hmm. Shop with Mike Bradley. 
But we went, we recorded the song. We went to take a lunch break, and while we were gone, he said, "I think I needed some power chords." Yeah, just leave them. <laughs> it works fine. That's yeah, funny man. Yeah, I want to jump around real quick because sure, I got some stuff I want to cover. But sure. um, speaking of your influences and stuff like that, you all did two albums with Johnny Johnson. Oh yeah. How did that even come about? Well, a part of our influences, big part of our influences. If, for those who don't know, by the way, that's yeah. Chuck Berry's piano player. Exactly. Uh, we, we all grew up listening to Johnny B. Good and Maybelline and all those early chess record sides that were cut in Chicago by Leonard Chess. And everybody has to hear that, that tinkling piano behind there. It's just dancing around. Matter of fact, when I, I met Jeff Beck, um, had a conversation with him. I gave him one of those albums. Yeah. And I showed him the, the CD, and he saw Johnny's name. He went, he started mimicking a, a keyboard player and started <laughs> smiling and saying, oh, man, we're in England. We like Chuck, but we really love that piano. Right. You know, we yeah. love the piano. And uh, uh, all right, we were up for, uh, let me get this right second Grammy Award, I guess. We won one Grammy in 90, right? Uh, we were up for three or four or something. We won one. But then we went back the following year at 91, I guess. And we went to a reception one night before the Grammy telecast. And there was a room full of people. There was uh, the Allman Brothers were there. Buddy Guy was there. And there was Johnny Johnson. Yeah. And going to New York... I had just bought the album Johnny B. Bad that was released uh, on Electra Records. NRBQ produced it, mm -hmm. and uh, Keith Richards was on the album. Eric Clapton was on the album in RBQ. And, and so, the, there again, we, we were fans of NRBQ. We're being fans of Clapton and Johnny Johnson. So as soon as we saw Johnny Johnson, we bolted to him. Of course, the two managers are going, wow. Guys like each other, so the seeds were planted for that album to happen. That's so cool. In '91, and so we were going to get together sometime after touring and start working on that album with Johnny, and it, it would have been with Doug and Ricky. And but what happened uh, in June of '92? Doug and Ricky left the band. Right. And so we had to put that off. And then by the time we did do the Johnny Johnson album. Uh, we had brought Mark Orr in on vocals, and our cousin Auntie came in back on bass, yeah. which it it worked. It worked because uh, because those guys had a really good understanding of, of blues and rock, and so it worked out, you know. Yeah. But it would have been it been really interesting to know what the original Headhunters and Johnny would have sounded like together. Uh, that would have been pretty cool. But we met him at a Grammy party. He uh, showed up at the practice house sometime and. God, was it 93, three-ish? I don't know, it was cold. And and he liked jamming with us in the jail, and we went to the studio, and we knocked the album out in a week and did a little touring with him and worked with him. And, That's awesome. And later on, we had him in the studio for an overdub, and that turned into a whole night of jamming, and that that we had a bunch of material in the can, which become yeah. Meet Me in Blues Land later on. Right. Yeah. Um. Now, you mentioned Jeff Beck, who sadly passed recently. Yeah. And another one who sadly passed is Scary Rosington. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't know until recently that 
you jammed with Skinner and even had an offer with Skinner at one point. Is that well, hell right? yeah. I wasn't the right – I'll tell you right up front, I wasn't the right guy. And I love Leonard Skinner, but they, they got the right guy. You know, but what – yeah, uh, let me get this right. I went to the Dallas Guitar Show in um, March of 1992, and I meet Ed King. Ed King loved the Headhunters. First thing he asked me, all right, I want you to tell me something. Are you guys a rock or are you a country band? He said, well, we're really, our roots are rock. He said, I know it. I knew it. <laughs> he said, I heard you guys on Farm Aid. I was, in, I was taking a shower, and I hear this band kick in, and I about broke my neck jumping out of the shower to hear who that was, and it was you guys. And me and Ed hit it off that whole weekend. You know, I was down at the Dallas Guitar Show. Um, and... Uh, you know, we said our goodbyes at the end of the show. I went back home, so I'm going to think it was uh, Mayish, around May of uh, 1992. I was out mowing my yard. I went. I had a fax line with a phone answered on, in my music room, and I went in there to to get a get a coke or something. And and there was a message. It was from Ed. Hey, this is a Ed King, Greg. Uh, I broke my finger. We need somebody to fill in. Would you do it? Of course, I'm young and or younger, not not real young, but uh, I said, "Oh yeah, sure, man, I can do it." <laughs> I got down there and they put me through school, and I went, "I'm not." <laughs> yeah, I think I need some more work at this. But anyway, we got we hit it off really well. I went out and did about uh, I think about eleven shows with the guys. Uh, I flew down to Jacksonville. We rehearsed. It seemed like we did a couple of rehearsals and. Then I met them. First gig I played with them. This is crazy. We played down in Louisiana, uh, and and who's opening up is my stepson's band, Black Cat Bone. Really? Wow. They we had they had no idea I was doing it. Yeah. Because back then we did, you know, Johnny his band they were out on the road, touring with different people, and we didn't have internet and sure. and, and he wasn't checking in with his mother like he should to tell what you know. So anyway. I go out and do those shows with them, and uh, the last show I did with them was uh, June of sometime in June uh, in Nashville, and then we went our separate ways, and that's when our original band broke up. As soon as I got done with that tour, Ricky and Doug quit, so we immediately go in and going, oh, okay, what are we going to do? So we have to. We decided to bring in Mark Orr, and then Anthony Kenny, and that was that. But then '94. I get a call one morning from Gary Rosington. He said, uh, uh, Randall just left the band. I said, Would you, we, we're going to ask you first if you'd be interested in joining up. So uh, I need to think about this. And I hung up. I said, no, I prayerfully, I, I can't do it. You know, uh, I just knew that a band had been through enough hell with members leaving. Sure. That another member leaving, especially a brotherhood, people I've been together with ever since 68, off and on it just wasn't the right thing to do and I called Gary back and he said well that's okay uh, another fellow that was writing with Ed King at the time uh, plays with Molly uh, not Skinny Molly Skinny Molly band he took the gig yeah. and he he said I thank you Greg every time he sees me he thanks me I said well hey man you were supposed to do it I wasn't supposed to do yeah. it but I did get that offer and I got to play with him and I loved Gary me and Gary hit it off really good. Me and Ed, I loved every one of them. Yeah. Well, loved just, all the guys. Just getting the offer alone, I yeah. think, says so much. Uh, but yeah. then having 
the I guess the faith that what you were doing, the path you were on, was the right one. It was is, the right one. I have I've never it's just regretted. really cool and being with your brothers and all that, knowing yeah. that that's where you belong. Well, the, the one big having aspect, the sense to do that. Well, one aspect. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you're just going to go for the money, you right? Know, and you know, you but but the aspect, you know, with with Skinner, you had to buckle down and be the member that you were taking his place. Whether uh, I guess in my case it would have been like doing Alan Collins and stuff, which I respect immensely. But but with the headhunters, I don't have to be. It's easy. You just be yourself. Yeah. You know, you might be influenced by somebody, but you don't do anything other than who you are and who God made you to be. And, right. And, and that, that that was the thing. And I, I, we went through some rough two or three years after the Phelps' left. Uh, there came one time when I thought it was going under, came real close, and Doug rejoined. Mm -hmm. And slowly we built the brand back up, and we've had a good run. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, back before uh, we get to more to the headhunter sure, stuff, uh, I told you I went on a YouTube rabbit hole with you. Yeah. And uh, you know, just Jeff Beck and Rosington and yeah. Billy Gibbons, Joe Bonamassa, Buddy Guy. I could name a thousand that you jammed with, and there's videos all yeah. over. And that's when I was like, I need to know this guy. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been blessed. I was man. like, uh, I was like, like I've been hiding under a rock or something. How did I not know about Greg Martin? But anyway, uh, is I'm there blessed. a uh, is there anyone that stands out as, like, holy shit, I can't believe I just played on stage with this guy? Ronnie Montrose. Do you know who really? Ronnie I Montrose know is? I yeah. Um, that's a guy I was just totally, just totally immersed with back in, oh, back in mid-'70s when the first Montrose album, and that's the album, folks, if you want to hear some blues rock. Mm -hmm. I, th I think the matter of fact, when I rejoined Itchy Brother, we actually didn't have a Southern rock leaning at all at the time. When I when I joined back in 77, we sounded more like an English rock band. Uh, because I think a lot of it, well, them guys could do anything, you know, Richard Fred. But they were their sales. I, they never really copied anybody. But when I joined, I'd been really immersed in uh, Led Zeppelin and, and, and Montrose. And then getting to know Ronnie, we hit, it's just one of these things we hit it off at a NAMM show. And when I had this band called, well, still got it's called Rufus Huff. You could check us out. He was wanting to produce the second album, but then yeah. he ended up dying, you know. And, uh, but yeah, that's one guy where you just pinch yourself and go, wow, right? You know, um, yeah, man, I've got to play with a lot of, you know, um, Charlie Daniels, man, got to jam with those guys, Skinner, Marshall Tucker, um, God, there's been a buddy guy. That was a freak thing last year. Mm, that, that was just last year? Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. yeah, I just happened to go to the gig, and I know the drummer, and I went up to see him at, at intermission to buy a CD from him. And I was pretty much, we said, hey, man, good seeing you. And, and he walked up to me and said, listen, uh, would you be interested in getting up and playing? I know you didn't come up here to play, but would you? And I said, well, sure. He said, I'd like to hear you and Buddy play together. I thought, well, okay. yeah, man. I mean, I didn't. I don't have no picks or guitars or yeah. nothing. Or I said, sure. So he said, well, um, he told me what song. He said, just go through that door and see our guitar tech. You know, uh, when that certain song hits. And Buddy had no idea I was yeah. out there. Matter of fact, I think he was expecting some kid to walk out. I walked out there with the, with a the woman of his polka dotted guitars on. He said, "Hell, you're as old as I am." <laughs> and I hit a few notes, start playing. He he pointed to me, and he went back and started drinking. Yeah, 
Yep. You know, it was fun. It was great. I, but I have got to play with a lot of, oh, gosh, man. That's great. You know, it's been amazing. Um, I'm going to take a quick pause. JP, uh, come on, man. Yeah, You're JP. Do a quick pause real quick because sure. it only lets me do an hour at a time. And sure, I've got man. just a few more questions oh, sure. for you. So let's sure, just I'll take a quick break. Coffee. We'll be right back with Weekend Superstars. All right, welcome back to part two with Greg Martin of Kentucky Headhunters. So we have a tradition on the show. Um, we try to ask everybody, basically, do you have a favorite place that you've played? And out of, I know you've played everywhere, but <laughs> is there anywhere left on your bucket list that you'd like to cross off as a? Venue? Oh, you mean places to play? Yeah. Well, my favorite place. There's two. I'm gonna give you two places I love playing: Louisville, Kentucky. Because I grew up here in Louisville. Any certain Born. venue, though? State Fair. Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, the Palace is great, too. I've played there with Bonamassa. Yeah. And, and we were talking earlier. I got the jam with Buddy Guy there. Never played with the head. You know, okay, bucket list. I'd like to see the Headhunters play the Palace. I'm surprised you haven't. We have That definitely I played there with Ronnie McDowell. I played there with uh, Buddy Guy. I played there with Joe Bonamassa, but never the Headhunters. That needs to happen. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So that's my bucket list. Uh, a second place I really enjoy playing, which we haven't done in a long time, is New York City. It's just got this inherent energy. It's sure. got this energy, man. I don't yeah. know how to describe it. Um, speaking of venues, I yeah. saw just not too long sure. ago that uh, you all made your Opry debut. We did. It took took a long time. <laughs> but uh, was that something that was ever – did that even cross your mind to play the Opry? Because, like you said, you're not, you're not really a country band, you know. Uh, right. You're not really a gospel band or anything like that. Didn't <laughs> you didn't fit the bill until recently? Yeah. Did it surprise you to get that call? Yeah, yeah. Because I, uh, okay, if you really go back to the '90s, there was always talk of Roy Acuff saying, "Oh, them guys' hair is too long." This and that. Exactly. And so that's what I was always told, and I just went, "Okay, then we're not, we don't fit their." their image or whatever and I never never thought a thing about it and they did approach us sometime around uh, oh I don't know what year it was 2009 or 10 and but they wouldn't let us we had to use whatever amplifiers were there and, and, and it, they wouldn't make any concessions on uh, uh, helping us try to get our sound so we, we declined yeah politely declined and thanked them anyway and I thought that, that's it I'll never I've done the Opry with Ronnie McDowell three times Okay, and it's it's a nerve wracking thing the first time you do it listen when I did it with Ronnie you'd plug into a PV amplifier and it had a epoxy the knobs were epoxy you couldn't turn up you couldn't change nothing Wow, it, you know, and I, and that's, that was in my mind. I thought, well, I don't want to go do the opera and have to plug into that amp and have a big dead sound, you know. <laughs> right. And so can't, uh, can't take your Marshall in there. Yeah, but I didn't. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I, I played the Ryman with a Marshall before, but when we finally did the Opry, they they made concession. They they worked with us. I was able to take a small car amp, which is basically enough to break up and get some little break up you know sure and when they asked us uh this would have been um sometime like summer of 2021 you know after things were coming back from the pandemic they asked us and we discussed it and uh, they were 
wanting to work with us on letting us bring amplifiers if we needed to. And so we did it, and it went great. It went great. December, uh, I guess it was December of 2021. Then we did it again last December as well. December 8th, I think. That's cool. So we've done it twice, and Ricky Skaggs has been on both times. And uh, it, it went well. Uh, like I say, I'd done it with Ronnie McDowell back back in the, which was in my own band. But I knew it was nerve-wracking doing it on their terms. You know, sure, yeah. You know, back sure. then. Well, the headhunters are mm-hmm. still together. We're together. Still rocking, still busy. We're busy. And uh, what's new? What have you got coming up? What's going on with you guys? Well, we're um, we're back on the road. We've already been very busy this year. Uh, in March, we were out every weekend uh, into early April, and then we had a couple of weeks off. Uh, we play Renfro Valley this coming week. Uh, that's right. That's, that's in yeah, my neck of the woods here. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're doing that, and we're playing. Is there anything on the horizon um, really just a lot of touring we're playing the Kentucky State Fair with Foghat oh cool <laughs> I guess that'll be in August uh, we're just out there on the road doing what we do you know yeah. I don't know you know of anything other than that uh, we're still working on the last album that we did uh, that's a fact Jack uh-huh. and I'm sure at some point there'll they'll come a time where we'll do another album because uh, I mean you know we, we can we could go out and do Picking on Nashville all day. We could probably do that album, go out and tour on that for two years and say, here, we'll do Picking on Nashville, the whole album, and <laughs> then maybe a few tracks from Electric Barnard, and everybody would be happy, I guess. The audience would. But, uh, you know, you have to define who you are at the moment. Sure, yeah. man. Uh, that's something I was going to ask, actually, was uh, your last album was, what, three years ago? It was actually 2021. 21, okay, mm-hmm. so... Are you still recording live? Are you all separated, like the taking advantage of the technology and well, zooming in sessions, like some people are? Like, what's your recording process no, now? It, well, coming out of the pandemic, it was pretty crazy because we hadn't played a, a note hardly uh, in in months, really. You know, together because everybody was kind of, you know, everybody's quarantined, and you know, I had COVID back in November of twenty twenty one. I missed the last hit. There was only eleven nine to 11 gigs in 2020 and I missed the last one because I came down with COVID just you know had a you know I've stopped up you know with the I just thought I had bad allergies but I was really tired so sure. when, when I tested positive then it was like ooh I got the dreaded <laughs> COVID I stayed quarantined for two weeks you're doomed yeah. you know that movie, remember that movie the Hudson Brothers you're doomed <laughs> you know and, and uh, nothing really happened I know of <laughs> you know but I made it through that then we decided we needed to do another album uh, so we got together we went to the studio with the songs and we just knocked them out on the floor still doing uh, the floor, we recorded right? them live yeah, yeah. we had to go it. back and fix parts here and there but yeah, most generally live. Yeah, yeah, I just I know like well, Exile for instance. We had JP on. He mm-hmm. he said we're never in the same room anymore when we record. You, know? you mean they send uh, parts to each other? They they send files and stuff, and oh. so some people just do it differently. It's different and, and go different routes. No but man, I figured the the style of music that you guys do, you almost have to feel it in the same well, room. You know, I I love recording live, and I'm we're in a Steve Wilson studio right now. And um, you can see this room, and I'm I'm going to bring a, a couple of guys up here one day, and just record some stuff live. 
without a net. And uh, a couple of friends uh, uh, actually doing a gig with Sunday night. I may sneeze there a minute, so forgive me. <coughs> Sorry, Bless guys. You. Allergies. And because I love, I love the aspect of people responding to each other. You, that doesn't happen when you just go for a drum track. Sure. You know, I mean, I don't think the, maybe the audience don't hear the difference because it's down to the song. I mean, you know, if it's a hit song, it's a hit song. But at my age, man, if I don't enjoy it, I don't want to mess with it. That's right. just where I'm at. I'm getting old and contrary. Get off my yard. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of my yard. Get off my grass. Fill us in on what you yourself have going on, like your radio show, mm. how, to, how to get a hold of the listen to the show. Um, man, for 21 and a half years, I've been at WDNS in Bowling Green every Monday night from 7 to 10 Central Standard Time. I have a show called The Lowdown Hoedown, right. which is a blues show, but we take liberties with the genres. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, I've... I mean, it was one week Brian Wilson was coming to a Bowling Green to play Sky Pack. I played nothing but Prince Sounds and stuff like that one week. <laughs> and I'm sure the blues fanatics were like, okay, enough of you, boy. Yeah. You know, but uh, I do that. I've got Phil Kagey going to call in this week, this coming week. Great guitarist. And uh, and you can also get that online, too, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah, here's how you... If you live in South Central Kentucky, it's 93.3 FM. Now you can also go to d93rocks.com or wdnsfm.com, and you can hit the Listen Now, or there's a phone app for D93, and you can catch it live as it goes down, and it goes to a podcast section for about a week each show. So I do that every Monday night. If I'm not home and on the road uh, we'll rerun an old show right. that week um, Rufus Huff my other band which we don't get to play we, had, we hadn't played together in years and we played last December in Bowling Green we're going to open up for Wishbone Ash in Bowling Green at the Capital Arts Theater on uh, June 20th a Tuesday night we're going to do that um, and I mean I've got some projects in mind I want to do you know I want to do a, another funky blues project of some kind. I haven't decided how yet, but uh, and it could maybe bring it here. Who yeah. knows? You know. Cool, man. Well, Let's have fun. You know, it's all about music, and uh, the good Lord gave me uh, something I enjoy doing and something I can halfway do. And uh, at my age, I just hit seventy. Uh, I guess just keep doing it while the while the uh, brain and the hands work together. I guess. Yeah. You know? Well, I won't keep you, man. Um, oh, man I'm super thrilled that you agreed to do this with us. Pleasure meeting you. Thank you, buddy. Uh, real quick, I'm going to brag on you just for a second. Okay. Because uh, you know, we we had some scheduling conflicts. We sure did. I'm sorry. But uh, like I said, we had never met prior to today, yes. but we yes. corresponded a little bit. Yes, and uh, you made me feel comfortable. Like, I don't really get nervous meeting people. Oh, you should. But yeah. I do get anxious sometimes. But on the way up here, I was like, I, I felt like I was just coming over to a buddy's house. I was like, you, did you have made a good me feel piece? very well. Did you have a good piece about it? Yeah. Good. You know, well, so, that's uh, a... I really appreciate that and your kindness. Oh, man, that's all right. And Thank h- you. hope we can do it again sometime. Well, we man. will. We absolutely will. And uh, like I told my wife, I, you know. We'll bring George on to make him do all the talking next time. Well, George, I absolutely <laughs> like to meet George. If I haven't met George somewhere. But uh, I also, let me, let me, before I go, because I got 
two very talented step kids. Sure. And I, they're really not step kids. They're my kids. You know, I love them both dearly. John McGee and Sherry McGee. Now, John McGee, around Lexington, he's been with Tail Dragger for years. He's uh, He also played with Black Cat Bone. Mm-hmm. He plays guitar and bass. Uh, I guess he can play bass, but guitar and drums. And Sherry McGee was with... Um, she was with Velvet Elvis, yeah, and great drummer. They both write songs. They are now my grandkids. They got a group called Sour Cream around Lexington, and that's Harlan Earl Cecil on guitar and John Ellis McGee on drums. And then my little I, Paul McGee is a, a he's more of the athletic type. But then we got little Liam McGee who can play guitar and all kind of stuff. So, you know, the grandkids are coming up. Of course, Richard's kids have got uh, Blackstone Cherry. Right, yeah. And then we got other kids that work for us. There's a group called Otis. I'm not sure if you heard of Otis. I have. Yet. I've checked out Otis. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, doesn't that feel good? Have the whole family yeah. just continuing the yeah. thing, man? And me and Boone from Otis and their drummer, Jared, we're, we're playing. Uh, I learned of Otis from your lowdown. Yeah, actually. yeah. That's how yeah. I found out about Otis. And Otis, we're playing Sunday night in Bowling Green. Uh, as Cedar Flat Lightning, two guitars and drums. It'll just be this distorted little combo amps. Yeah. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be nasty. Wow, you know? man! But hey, Great. been blessed. Uh, the good Lord's blessed me over the years, and uh, I got to do what I was called to do. I feel like, and uh, I'm glad we got to meet. Me too, know? man. I appreciate it, Greg. Thank God you. God bless you, man. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all for listening. Later. You've been listening to Weekend Superstars with John McHugh and George Moulton. Our guest tonight was the one and only Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. If you guys have never seen the Kentucky Headhunters live, do yourself a favor. Go check them out. They're actually going to be at Renfro Valley this Saturday night. So make sure you go check them out. Check out their latest album. That's a fact, Jack. And until next time, later.